there was a man uh, who was overweight, and he decided that he had some excess pounds to lose. Uh, he was very diligent and stuck to his di uh, diet very strictly. He even had a new route to work so that he wouldn't drive by his favorite bakery in the morning. I, I kind of, I think we've all experienced this to a certain extent. However, one day he came into work with a big old, big old coffee cake. His coworker started to scorn him and he said that he could explain. He said, you see, I accidentally drove past my favorite bakery today and I saw all these delicious coffee cakes out in the display case. So I prayed. I prayed to God and I said, if you really think I should have this delicious coffee cake, have an open parking spot right in front of the bakery. And soon enough, there was one on my eighth time around. Um, so I, uh, eight, he's lucky. It takes me 15 sometimes. Um, I share this because it is very easy for us to dodge or manipulate ourselves into justifying temptation, okay? Uh, we, we look for ways to set ourselves up, but then also to have an excuse. Uh, last week, we learned that permanent life-fulfilling joy can only be found in Jesus. We also were made cognizant that God's promises to Christians aren't derailed by trials, tribulations, or tests. In fact, one might make the argument that difficult circumstances enhance what God has promised us. So today, we are going to continue this theme of joy or blessedness and see how it should play out in our lives by offering a little bit of clarity. So the question we're going to address this morning is, what do I do when I face trials? What do I do when I face trials? How do I respond? And I, I believe one of my other sermons I've preached kind of had this same idea. But if you remember Dylan's sermon from last week, we talked about count all joy, brothers, when you, brothers and sisters, when you go through various trials and that we can grow from those. Well, that's fine that we count it a joy, but how do we, how do we confront them? How do we attack them or be on the defense? So what do I do when I face trials. When we experience a crossroad in our life that's not all that desirable, what lens do we look through to properly understand what in the world is going on? Is this an opportunity to make me look more like Jesus, or am I being enticed by my sinful desires to make me more like Satan? So let's turn to the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's going to be, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you're sitting in the front row, it's underneath your chair. Um, if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that. That is our gift to you. Uh, it is page 1071. Uh, we are continuing our series on James, Faith That Works, and we are going to be in verse 12 through 18. 12 through 18, and we're going to go through this verse by verse uh, and have a good time. Um, all right, you ready? Let's go. Verse 12, blessed or blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So let's look at this word blessed a little further. I think we remember it as if, if you've ever encountered someone and they're struggling or they didn't make a wise decision, you usually say, well, bless his heart, okay? Um, it could be a southern, southern term, but I think it's used everywhere. Bless his heart. So when we use it in that joking way and we hear the word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, we kind of like, I don't know, we kind of glaze over it and just not really think about the implication. And so the Greek word translated blessed um, and the Hebrew equivalent basically mean the good life. Now, not like an actual literal transition, but when you look at what those words mean and you interpret into like a modern day culture, it means the good life. Now, who here is familiar with that phrase, the good life? Yeah, oh, okay. I didn't say raise hands, so nodding's okay. Uh, but it's one, of the, it's one of those things where 
We want to live the good life. We want to pursue the good life. I think there's even a TV show called The Good Life. Uh, there's a TV show named after everything, but The Good Life. And so um, let's look at a couple of worldly schools of thought regarding the good life so we can kind of take those in context to what scripture means. Um, so there's, there's uh, one option is a life of pleasure. Um, so this is the pursuit of that which feels good, okay? The pursuit of that which feels good. There's also the good life is the, the fulfilled life, the pursuit of of happiness. Uh, there's also the meaningful life. These are different like philosophies, uh, which is the pursuit of purpose. And then there's the finished life, which is the pursuit of the end. There's actually an old Greek quote said, call no man happy until he's dead. <laughs> That's, yeah. Um, so not all of these are unbiblical or wrong. <laughs> the last one might be a little sketchy. Um, but there is some overlap. Like we do pursue purpose in our life. Um, our purpose is to glorify God. Well, what exactly does that look like? It's, it's not wrong to want to be happy. Um, and so while some of these do overlap, God would not consider someone who has this line of thinking, these four right here, as blessed. And in fact, in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So the, those who follow Jesus know true satisfaction can only be found in him. But, but what does this look like? These are nice church words, but how does this play out in everyday life? Let's look at verse 12 again. It says, the good life, it involves enduring trials because as a result, one will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is not, um, I think oftentimes how we betray it. We're actually thinking of a physical crown. It could be. I mean, that would be, that'd be dope. Um, maybe it's like gold or something like that. It could be. But it's more of a symbol or a way of expressing what we receive. That is eternal life. It's better phrased as the crown that consists of life. Even if it is also a physical reward, like I said, that'd be awesome. It would be more of like a laurel wreath made of branches and leaves and not a golden crown. It represents triumph. Um, if any of you like watch horse racing, you know, one day a year of uh, the Kentucky Derby or something like that, um, <laughs> it's basically, it's kind of that laurel that they put on the horse because the horse is actually the one who did all the work. Um, so that's kind of what is experienced here. Uh, so we, we see, basically what I'm getting at here is you see the connection between the good life, blessed, and then trials and eternal life. But still, here's our main question. What do I do when I face these trials? Blessed are those who face them, who endure them but how do we face them? So we all know we should count all joy when we go through various trials. Um, but like I said, how do we face them? How should we view different trials? And what in the world are we supposed to do when we get ransacked by them? I, I chose that word specifically, uh, ransacked, ambushed, sacked. You don't anticipate trials. You don't wake up in the morning and go like, hmm, I wonder what trials I want to get in today. Uh, unless, unless you have a, a bad situation or bad work situation, you anticipate it. You're like, hey, let's get into some trouble this morning. Um, that's not how we normally think, all right? So let's continue in verse 13 and kind of see what do we do? Why do these trials come? How do we know what's a trial? How do we know what's a temptation is? Um, and we'll tackle that one by one. Verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, so when you face these trials, this is not how you should react. They should not say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So here's the potential challenge. Uh, the word, the root word of both trials and temptation is the, in the original Greek, they're the same. 
They're the exact same word. Furthermore, James goes back and forth between these two words. And, and what this means is context is key in determining the meaning. There's, it's kind of like this a, a literary device where you're using the same word, but it means different things for emphasis. And, and I think we do it often in our, in our daily conversation. So uh, D.A. Carson, a theologian, says this to kind of clarify what James is doing in this passage. James plunges from one to the other, one use of trials and one use of temptation, because he is writing as we experience these things. The same events that are opportunities to go forward are also opportunities to go backward. So that leads us to our first point is trials are opportunities that lead to sin or sanctification. Trials are opportunities that lead to sin or sanctification. When is something we are trying to endure a test from God, which we see throughout scripture, or a temptation due to our own sin. We see this in verse 13. When you are going through a trial or a difficult situation and you are leaning towards sinning as a response uh, or an answer, it's temptation. You are being drawn away from God to take matters into your own hands. Now, with that being said, I also want to reiterate, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. I've actually wrestled with this idea because I'm like, wow, if I'm... If I'm tempted to do this, it might mean I'm tempted not to follow God. So is that temptation a result of evil in my heart? And we always, and that's an honest question, but we always have to compare it to what the scriptures say. And when you go to the gospels, there is evidence um, that Satan is actually tempting. He uses the word tempting Jesus. He's basically saying, if you bow down before me, I will give you basically everything that God has already promised to him. And so Jesus, of course, would desire these things. Uh, Jesus is God. He wants these things. He wants these things for us. But he knows bowing to Satan is not the route to go. So we see Jesus is tempted, but he did not sin. So if you are tempted throughout your day, please don't get upset. Don't feel like you've been discouraged. Don't feel like that um, you've been set up or that you are currently sitting like there is still an opportunity for you to be obedient. Okay? If we do fall into our temptation, James clearly say, says that you can't point the finger at God. He didn't tempt you. In fact, God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. So when is a trial a temptation? Well, it's being drawn away by what you want or how you want to respond, and then actually doing it. It's that following through mentality. It's your own sin that influences you. Put another way, temptation does not come from the hand of God. And so some context here, James is writing to uh, Christians, and, and Dylan had mentioned that last week. And so that's the context here. And this is a letter that was written to a certain group of people, but it can also be applied to us. Uh, the principles can be applied to us as well. Um, but what I imagine is going on here is there are people who are really struggling with things, and they're new Christians and they're saying that, no, God is setting me up. God is tempting me to do this. And James is correcting that thinking. He's like, no, you're tempted by your own desires and you follow through on that. The devil didn't make you do it. That's a, that's a phrase we all say all the time. In fact, you made you do it. You see, Satan can only use what's presently there. So this reminds me of this, this illustration that I, I found. I didn't write this. Um, I can be creative sometimes, uh, like the uh, Next Steps video. Oh, I searched the whole time to find that girl. And when I heard him talking about, you know, crushed it out of water, is that like similar to like water under the fridge? <laughs> it's water under the bridge. But um, anyway, so I just kind of had to exploit him because he's not here to defend himself. 
So in this illustration, we got this, uh, this father, and he says, son, don't swim in the canal. Okay, dad, the boy answered, but he came home carrying a wet bathing suit that evening. Uh, where have you been, demanded the father. Swimming in the canal, answered the boy. Didn't I tell you not to swim there, asked the father. Yes, sir, answered the boy. So why did you? Well, dad, he explained, I had my bathing suit with me, and I couldn't resist the temptation. Well, why did you take your bathing suit with you, he answered. So I'd be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. Uh, but don't, don't we kind I mean, don't we sometimes, like oftentimes, set ourselves up, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not? So basically, returning to Scripture, James uses two metaphors in verses 14 and 15 to further explain temptation and the result of giving in. The first is that of fishing. The language used here carries the idea of baiting a hook. I'm sure we've got some, some fishing people here. The, I, I am not one of them. The idea is to hide the hook from the fish because no normal fish would bite a metal hook if it's exposed. I say no normal fish because there was this time I was fishing, I was younger, and the hook was actually lying or like in the water as I was getting the worm. And then the pole started to shake and I lifted up and there's a fish there. So I caught the world's dumbest fish that bought the hook. Um, so that's why I say not a normal fish. Um, so temptation lures us out into traps us. Well, the second metaphor is that of pregnancy and birth. Desire is one who conceives. So this is kind of like the mother in this situation and then gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, and able to conceive on its own, it gives birth to death. And so this is supposed to be kind of a grotesque image, basically, of a mother giving birth to a full-grown individual who's already ready to conceive death. I mean, it's from the beginning, it's a disaster. As long as we continuously allow ourselves to respond to trials and tribulations by giving in to these desires, sin will always be the result. Life will spiral. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, another great theologian, just kidding, says this, it is easier to suppress the first desire, the first, you know, not falling through with your temptation, than to satisfy all that follow it. I have, uh, I think this was third, fourth, or fifth grade. I have this, this classmate named Tommy and this other classmate named Willie. And you can tell by my tone, I really love them. But Willie would always beat me in sports. You know, it's like I'd have the high score and like throw in the softball or whatever, and then it was Willie's turn, and then he would beat me. Tommy was the intellectual one, and so uh, I would sit beside him in math class, duh, <laughs> and I'm working on these, these problems, and I'm, 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 I'm tempted to look at his answer. So I'm, I'm showing my work and all that kind of stuff, and I know I have the right answer, but I just want to make sure, and I know Tommy does. So I just kind of look over. I see Tommy's work. I have the right answer. So what did I do? I crossed mine out and put the wrong answer because I felt so convicted for falling for that temptation, even though I should have just stayed the course and trusted that my answer was right. Literally, I'm like, oh, good job, Brian, you stink. And then I crossed it out and I got it wrong, even though I knew it was right. Um, so <laughs> basically, temptation, a lot of times, falling for temptation is driven by fear, that conviction, um, and maybe not necessarily conviction from God, but just afraid you're going to get caught, where Passing tests is more or less navigated by, by God. So let's now shift our attention to what having our faith tested by God. So we know God doesn't tempt us, nor can he be tempted, but he does, he does test us. And how do, we, how do we know the difference? Is there a difference, or does the difference really rely in how we respond? So look into verse 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting Shadows. 
So James here continues. He says, do not be deceived. Well, deceived by what exactly? Well, that God is tempting you and that he is the author of your sinful struggles and the reason you allow yourself to be enticed and give birth to sin. God has no part in that. God has no part in that. Rather, the verse uh, 16 says, or 17, only good and perfect gifts, not temptation, come from God. If a trial results in sin due to our desires, then it comes from within and not from above. However, if we see it as an opportunity to grow in our faith and be more conformed to the image of Jesus, then it's a test of our faith. In fact, looking back in uh, chapter one, verses two through three that Dylan covered last week, it says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Put another way, tests can help us look more like Jesus. Tests can help us look more like Jesus. The reason I put can up there, if you can put that up there for me, tests can help us look more like Jesus, is you can fail a test. We see that all throughout scripture. You can fail a test. Throughout scripture, we do see this. We do see that God tests people. So let's go back to Genesis. Don't mean to scare you. We were on that all last year. You guys are probably traumatized by that. Uh, It was a great series. But in chapter 22, verses one through two, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. Uh, um, Abraham replied, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, scripture says right off the bat in this passage that God is testing Abraham. Okay? Abraham is not aware of this, but, but God is, and we know that. Um, and, and for what purpose? Is God bored and enjoys seeing his creation sweat and pain and agony? No. Verse 17 actually says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Abraham may not have seen God's request as something good, I know I wouldn't have, but he had a decision to make when encountering this, what seemed to be a trial for him, but it was a test from God. And those two terms can be synonymous. But he had a decision to make. Grow in faith and trust God was asking for this sacrifice for his good, or to give into temptation and protect his son and hope God tests him in a different way. So certainly the God of the universe can test us with less dramatic measures, right? Like we think, why did it have to be this way? I often have, have prayed and thought back on instances in my life where I was very disobedient to God or he had to teach me a lesson and I'm just like, why did you have to do it this way? Like, why couldn't it have been simple? Why, why did it have to be a passing of a loved one or why did it have to be some sickness or why did it have to be like a broken relationship that I will never, ever be able to mend? And I think through those decisions, and I really honestly think that it's because God was actually showing me and directing me by other means, and I wasn't paying attention. And so sometimes he has to scream to get your attention because you're not paying attention to him. And so as we, if the, the more you walk in the spirit, the more you're sensitive to him, I'm not saying good things are going to happen, but I do think certain tests and God bringing you back to himself is a result of disobedience, and he does have to go to certain extreme measures. But it's not because he wanted to. It's not his first option. But there are also some things that just happen because there's evil in this world. And so I say all that because it's very, when I was studying this passage, it was, I kind of, we review the sermon uh, every week and uh, get feedback and stuff like that. It was, I had to kind of rewrite some of this stuff because it's difficult. It's like, when is it a trial? Is it a test? Is it a sin to, to, to be tempted? Can I fail a test? There's a lot of stuff going on, but I really think the, the idea is that when we are confronted with the trial, 
We run to God. We don't blame him. Like that's the bottom line here. So Jesus continues to share why these gifts coming down from God are good and perfect. In, in verse 17, he tells us the one who tests us and draws us closer to him is the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, I got this uh, picture of some shadows on the screen. We'll throw it up there. And um, <laughs> pretty cool. I've seen the ones that like dance to music on TikTok. Uh, no, I see them on YouTube because what happens is the cool people have TikTok the okay, cool people have Instagram, which is TikTok two weeks later. And then I watch it on a YouTube short, which is a month later. So I'm like, hey, this was funny. And everybody's like, we've moved on. We've moved on, Brian. Um, but if you see here, there are some animals on the actual, you know, the light on the wall. But when you look at the hands, they look nothing like what's depicted at all. David Platt, former president of the International Mission Board and now teaching pastor, says God is perpetually, constantly, consistently good. He never gets in a bad mood. He never changes for the worse. He never changes for the better because he is already perfectly and ultimately and wonderfully good in every way and you cannot get any better than God. And every good and perfect gift comes from the Father lights, comes from something that you can see because the lights are on and not from the shadows, not from that thing that like looks enticing, looks awesome, until you really take a step back and like, oh my gosh, it's just a bunch of fingers. I mean, not in real life, but in, in the shadow. <laughs> That'd be weird. So we are tempted away by our own desires. We are saying, I think I can do better than God, but you can't, and scripture is filled with evidence proving this over and over again. Let's finish with verse 18. By his choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why can every trial that God allows to happen for our good rather, um, yeah, rather than a temptation that often leads us in? Why, why is that the case? Because only good can come from God and he, and the greatest good God has for us is this new birth, which is salvation. And as a result, we become the first fruits of all he created. Uh, there is uh, lots of different views of like what first fruits can mean in this passage. It's often um, people will bring the first fruits of their harvest as a sacrifice to say, hey, this is the first thing picked. This is awesome. There's more like this to come. Uh, it could also be that uh, in this time, like these were followers of newer followers of Christ. So like they are the first of this. Uh, but basically what's happening here is we are the first fruits. We are desirable. We are what God wants. We become equal with Jesus in the respect of how God views us and we do that because of salvation. And we do that because God tests us. He tested. He was tested himself. In the garden, there was times uh, when he was praying. He's like, Lord, <laughs> please, if, it any, if there is any other way, let this, pass, this cup pass by me. Like, I don't want to do this this way. But if it's your will, so be it. And so to answer this question... Why do I, what do I do when I face trials? I think the best way to phrase it is to pursue the father of lights, not the shadow of your desires. Because again, temptation does not come from God. It comes from us. There's some outside sources as well, but why are we lured away? We sin when we fall into those temptations. We grow in our faith when we pass those temptations or those tests that we kind of call trials. And so the main aspect is, if you are pursuing, what, what do you do when you face trials? 
This passage in James is using this word of trials, temptations, the same word over and over again, back and forth. It can be a bit confusing. What the idea here is, as long as you pursue the Father of lights, which every good and perfect gift comes from, he cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt himself. You pursue that rather than the shadow of your own desires, things that you think are good for you because they might give you temporary uh, satisfaction um, that is going to let you down. It's not going to be there. You cannot touch a shadow. You cannot hang out with your shadow, unless you're Peter Pan. You can maybe do that, but that's, that's, not, that's not real life. Pursue the father of lights. When, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus, they weren't designed to be a checklist or even as a way to achieve personal salvation. No one could abide by the standard of holiness. The law was given to us as a litmus test, one that we fail every time. Hey, can you do this? Nope. All right, you need a savior. It was used to reveal we could not measure up and that salvation had to be found in something, someone greater than ourselves who could achieve what we could not. This person was Jesus who fulfilled every bit of the law on our behalf. This is the gospel. Jesus passed the ultimate test and demonstrated where his allegiance was to do the will of the Father. He pursued the Father of lights. And those who place their faith in Jesus and what he did will experience the new birth and become first fruits. That to me sounds pretty good. So with this backdrop, like where do you place your trust? Where do you turn and who do you lean on when you face trials? Do you lean on yourself, which can lead to sin, or God from whom all good comes, even when we are tested? I, I came across this meme. <laughs> uh, not really a meme, it was just like a post. And just to kind of give an idea, the tagline was, this is what the gospel looks like. This is what salvation looks like. And the scenario they gave is that when Paul, who was a great persecutor of Christians before he was Saul, um, he encountered God, changed his life, and then was one of the greatest missionaries that we've ever had. That when Paul enters heaven, some of the first people that are going to be clapping for him, opening his arms to embrace him, are those that he murdered and that he martyred before he found God. That's the gospel. 